Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is David Morneau. David Morneau is a friend of the show, and he is also a family law attorney uh, in Canada. And this is a different kind of podcast. Uh, we often get very sporty and have a lot of fun. And uh, this is a more serious tr- uh, subject matter. Mr. Morno uh, defends victims of human trafficking, and this is a conversation about that subject. It's one that unfortunately has become much more prevalent all across North America, Canada, the U.S., everywhere. Uh, it's become a very serious problem, and uh, he and I get into it about the mechanisms that lead to this, how lucrative it can be, how uh, it in some ways can even supersede the drug trade uh, as a rising uh threat and an issue and uh, what law enforcement officials can do about it, what attorneys can do about it, what people like us can do about it who aren't necessarily involved in the system. So um, a weightier topic, but a necessary one. And uh, Dave does a really good job of explaining the whole thing and uh, goes through the process and it is much appreciated. And uh, it's something that I hope you learn from. And uh, if you are so moved and want to reach out in your community to support the local shelter or whoever it is that might be able to help uh, young women in need, then feel free to do so. But again, uh, I appreciate the time for David Morneau for talking about this serious and necessary subject. Let's discuss the sponsor of this week's podcast, which once again is SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the best way to buy tickets to every type of live event. That's sports, that's concerts, that's everything. I've used SeatGeek a bunch of times for baseball, for hockey, for concerts, for everything. And they are terrific. Color-coded map makes it really, really easy to understand. All right, well, the best deal might be here or there. If you're at a ballpark, maybe it's third base side, first base side, behind home plate, upper deck bleachers, whatever it is, SeatGeek is analytical and intuitive, easy to use, and will make it a snap to get the tickets that you want, or the price that you want, to the event that you want. And... If you're using SeatGeek for the first time, get this. You can download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah, and you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase just by entering the promo code Jonah. And also, let's say you've already used SeatGeek, but you want to go to a baseball game. Well, that's cool. Just use the promo code Carry, and you'll get $10 off of MLB tickets. That's promo code Carry, K-E-R-I, for MLB tickets, 10 bucks off. So there you go. Promo code Jonah, $20 off first time purchase, $10 off MLB tickets by entering the promo code Kerry. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Hey, we've got some programming notes here. So CBS Sports, we've got lots of good stuff going on over there. Uh, as you listen to this podcast, there will also be a piece up on the site. I wrote about the three top hitters of the National League by Weighted Runs Created Plus, just basically park-adjusted offense. Yes, that's right, folks. If you selected Eugenio Suarez, Brandon Nimmo, and Matt Kemp as the top three hitters in the National League, not Votto, not Harper, not Goldschmidt, you win the big prize. Uh, amazing. Three totally different kinds of stories. How do these three guys become the best hitters in the league? And uh, what does it say about the league as a whole? Kind of interesting. And uh, it came up in conversation. And, uh, and CBS HQ, which we'll get to in a minute. And so I figured I would write about it. Speaking of CBS HQ, you can catch me there all the time talking baseball. Just go to cbssports.com. Bottom of the page has the HQ link and you could watch live streaming news and analysis 24 hours a day. You can also do so on the CBS Sports app. 
which you can access via Roku or Apple TV or what have you. And hey, how about this? You can get the best highlights and biggest sports stories right in your inbox every morning with this CBS Sports HQ newsletter packed with all the good stuff you need before you start your day. Just go to cbssports.com slash HQ daily to subscribe. That is all the stuff that I have for you this week. I hope you learned something uh, this week with the podcast. It is with David Morneau, and it's discussing the subject of human trafficking. Here it is. So we're going to bring in Dave Morneau to talk about this. How are you, sir? Not too bad, Mr. Carey. How about you? I am good. Uh, you and I know each other mostly through the baseball world. Um, you're involved with the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and all that good stuff. Uh, but we are going to deal with a different subject matter. You are a family law attorney. And uh, you, in the last, what is this, 18 months or so now? I'd say it's been probably about the last year, Jonah. Last year, have um, been involved in helping out with uh, cases involving human trafficking, which has become a really serious issue, not only worldwide, particularly in uh, Ontario, where you live. So I guess for starters, I want to get to uh, how did you end up with that? Because family law can go a bunch of different ways. You can just handle divorce cases. You can do whatever to do this, which is, uh, you know, obviously impactful, important and really difficult, I'm sure. Uh, how did that come to be? Well, it, I think I first identified it, Jonah, uh, probably about a year ago when it was directly, um, I was directly faced with a matter uh, it, helping an individual. One of the one of the gigs I have within uh, family law is I represent young people that are uh, uh, affected by the child welfare system and also custody and access system. So I represent kids in court. And through my work in child welfare, I was representing a young person, and it was very squarely and directly put to me that this young person had been trafficked. Um, that caused me to kind of do a mental audit over uh, the past couple of years uh, in terms of the work I had been doing, and I actually had identified several other cases where all of the indicators were there that these young people had been trafficked uh, through sex, domestic sex trafficking. Uh, so that's when I saw the problem, when I started investigating, it was a very steep learning curve for me. And when I started investigating, I realized this is a huge issue across North America. It's not what we see a Liam Neeson movie uh, and things happening that way. It's something that's very prevalent within uh, our society. And my hope is that people, when they hear about this, will like I did, be called to action to do something about it. So I want to try to draw the distinction and maybe define terms here. 
um, and I've thank you for the materials uh, that you exchanged with me, and I've been able to learn a little bit more. But for listeners, there's a stark difference between prostitution that one enters into willingly and trafficking where one is basically trapped into that life. So uh, perhaps you could define what the differences are and, and kind of how that gap can best be defined because it really is a stark difference and one is, is you know, tragic and the other one has its issues certainly but doesn't qualify as the same kind of thing. Well, and uh, excellent question. And, and the reality is uh, no one under the age of 18 can consent to uh, what people would otherwise, might otherwise call uh, sex trade work voluntarily. The human trafficking, though, uh, involves a third party using force, fraud, coercion, or any abuse of power control to exploit the victims into providing these services against their will. I mean, human trafficking also has a, a forced labor trafficking element, too. But what I've been involved with most is what's called the domestic sex trafficking. So... It's something that involves this element of, of coercion control. Uh, it, it could be something withholding of um, uh, withholding of food or um, forcing them to live in uh, confined spaces. It, it is all of those elements. It's that that coercive element that causes it to be human trafficking. Who gets targeted most often? What What is the population base that we're talking about here? Well, primarily, uh, I think what the statistics bear out is it's between, and if you can believe this, 12 years old to oh, 25 God. years old. Yeah. Um, I've worked with individuals who, uh, at 11, hmm. were trapped. Um, so statistically what we're seeing, and, and part of the problem why I, became so involved in this is I found out through my research and through the people that I've connected with. And I've connected with some uh, very influential and, and important individuals within uh, the domestic sex trafficking is uh, that 90, 93% in Ontario are girls uh, or young women. And 70% of all of the domestic sex trafficking throughout Canada is happening in Ontario. Wow. So when we're talking about these are obviously these are girls and, and young women that skew really, really young. Does is it are they targeted because of poverty? Are they targeted because of desperation? Like how do the perpetrators know who to go after beyond just screening for age? Are they looking for girls in desperate straits? Are they looking for girls dealing with substance addiction? Are there middle-class girls from suburbia being snatched from their homes? How, how did this come uh, to be? Well, the answer is all of the above. Okay. Um, social media has come to be one of the uh, biggest breeding grounds for pimps to uh, prey on. It's, it's a predatory industry. Yeah. Uh, so social media, and oftentimes what you'll see is 
And this is why we need to teach our kids, Jonah, the importance of when you put something out there, it's oftentimes it's there for everyone to see. So what you'll see is somebody posting uh, a comment about having had a falling out with their parents or their boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and they may post something. It's not difficult to put things together when you look at this and they're going to a mall. And so all of a sudden the pimp in that area is alerted to this, goes to a mall. The other thing that they do is sometimes they have recruiters. They have other young people that are recruiting young people, introducing them to these individuals. So where they're the number one breeding ground that I've heard is social media. Um, the child protection system I heard is another area. I've, and in fact, some have said to me that it's a number two area when people are in youth shelters or uh, group homes. Uh, so kids in the foster care system. I do think, Jonah, that things do skew more towards a certain uh, demographic, but I've also heard stories of a police officer that I'm working with in London had an incident where, um, and it's when, when you think about it, it's tragic. This young girl, I think she was in her mid-teens, 16, 17 years old, uh, she had to go to the parents' house. The dad was uh, upper middle class um, working within a company, knocked on the door and asked him, do you know where your daughter's been? His answer was, well, she's been going up north with her friends to their cottage. And this police officer had to break to him that, no, she's been trafficked. Wow. So this this young person, and it was over the course of an eight-week span during the summer, she was being trafficked. And so it, it doesn't necessarily know any boundaries. We We have to be... I think we live in a world where we're more disconnected with our kids because of things like technology and social media, and we don't necessarily have those conversations. Having a 16-year-old daughter of my own is another one of the reasons that motivated me to become involved because, quite frankly, could it happen to my kid? Sure. It can happen to anyone's kids. But the tendency is more towards uh, kids who are going through struggles, um, and certain socioeconomic um, demographics. The Toronto Star in particular did a great series, a very informative and terrifying series really about this, and talked about some of the methodology that the predators, pimps, what have you, will use to try to coerce young girls. You cited uh, potentially withholding food and so forth, but of course there's a process that leads up into that point. In other words, you talked about recruits and kind of the the luring aspect of it. So how does that come to be? Is it that a pimp will portray himself as a boyfriend initially, something to that effect? How is it that um, young girls acknowledging that they could have just dire straits and anybody who shows positive attention, that could be enough. But what are some of the things that lead to this situation where they become entrapped in that way? Well, there are, Number one, Jonah, if you go online, and I did it today uh, in preparation for the interview just to see if uh, this material is still readily accessible. If you go online, you see that, and, and you type in how to pimp, yeah. you'll get a, a full page including textbooks okay. written by pimps on how to pimp. It, it's, it's an industry, when you think about it from an economic standpoint, 
for every individual person, mostly girls, so for every young lady that is under quote unquote their employee, these guys make two hundred to four hundred thousand dollars per person per year. Wow. And if they build up what they call a stable, a number of uh young ladies that are uh that are being trafficked, that is a lucrative business from their standpoint. It's also known as a ghost crime. I mean, it's meant to be invisible. Nobody's supposed to know that this is going on. And the customers of uh, of these girls that are being trafficked are people from all walks of life. It's not a certain demographic that is going to see these kids. It's lawyers. It's And, and I've heard this. I've gone to a number of different um, training sessions. And you learn the most from the... Uh, the women that have been victimized and they're lawyers, they're judges, they're bankers, they're accountants. Those are who the Johns are. So uh, there is a very, very manipulative process that goes on. I mean, it's a grooming process. They lure these girls in. Uh, they look for the vulnerable girls. They gain their trust. They buy them expensive things. And then it seems all of a sudden, uh, and I would recommend to anyone the Toronto Star Series for gaining some more insight. It, it was probably one of the first things that I read when I started doing research uh, on this topic, and it is frightening. And they gain their trust. They become the boyfriend. So that's called the Romeo Pimp. Uh, where they sell them on the thoughts of the white picket fence and we're going to buy a house together and we're going to get married. And what happens is then all of a sudden it changes. So they bought them all these expensive things uh, that these young ladies couldn't afford. They wine them, they dine them, they taken them out, uh, all kinds of places. And then all, all of a sudden they have an economic crisis. And they need these girls to help them just for a temporary period of time. That's usually how it's portrayed. So I just need you helping me out. You're going to work for a friend of mine. Uh, you just do as he says. And then they end up in a massage parlor uh, or a hotel room. And they're trafficked. And they're, uh, again, the statistics show that uh, they're forced to have sex 10 to 15 times a day. Um, and then, then it becomes... Then there's that dependence that they built. Uh, this young lady now has a dependence on this pimp, and this they believe that this person is their boyfriend, so they're prepared to do anything that this person asks them to do, and then they're exploited from there, and there's usually violence that goes along with it. There have been arguments put forth about prostitution, not trafficking, but prostitution, that if you were to legalize the practice that would help things quite a bit. That if you had young women in control of their destiny, and this is what they chose to do, they chose to engage in the sex trade and they were of age, you would eliminate pimps, you would reduce violence. I mean, it could happen with a John, certainly, but it would, it would reduce violence greatly. It would add agency and personal responsibility to the women who are choosing to pursue this. They would be the masters of their own financial destiny and so forth. Would legalization put a similar dent in trafficking, or is this such a different thing that it wouldn't really help? Well, number one, 
I, anybody that's being coerced into this type of, uh, again, quote unquote trade, mm-hmm. um, there, there is no element of self-determination. Right. Sure. I, the, the answer is that there are, uh, people with, with, who work within the sex trade industry that do so voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about a completely different element here. Okay. We're talking about uh, a predatory and very lucrative business uh, where people are coerced and exploited. I don't think any elements of, in fact, I think if you loosen things up, in my own personal opinion, you're opening the floodgates. Hmm. You know, I've, I've had defense lawyers who are friends of mine say, well, you know what, this is all a sham. Human trafficking is a sham. How so? Well, because these girls are into drugs, they're getting themselves into trouble, and when they finally get caught, what they're doing is they're turning on these other guys and calling them pimps. And the only response I gave to one of those individuals was, because I know he has daughters, what if that was your daughter? Yeah. Is that an acceptable? That, it's not. These are children for the most part. Uh, and these are also young adults who have been, in all likelihood, Jonah, they've been lured and groomed into this even after they turn 18. So they're not making free choice here. Yeah. That's not to say that there, there isn't an industry where somebody is making that free choice, but we're not talking about that demographic in this situation. So... We'll get to what the rest of us can do because it's maddening and heartbreaking and terrible. What can you do as an attorney? You're one person. You're trying to affect change. You're trying to do something about it. You obviously, if a, if a case comes before you, okay, you'll defend that particular young woman to the best of your abilities. Can you do more than that other than the cases that are presented to you? Is advocacy the answer? Is spreading the word the answer? Can... Will other people learn of your work through this and come forward to you because you are uh, Mr. Morno who helped out so-and-so and and now maybe he can help me? Well, my hope is that, despite the the leaders that we, that seem to be there and the prevailing thought about those leaders, uh, both in Ontario and in the United States, the fact of the matter is I'm hearing the word collaboration a lot more. Mm. And this is something, so it starts, Jonah, with awareness. People need to know that this is going on. When people know that this is going on, in the small amount of uh, research that I sent you, no doubt you were shocked with what you read. So people need to know. And then from there, we work together. I mean, one of the things that Kathleen Wynne did before she left was she made significant changes to what used to be called the Child and Family Services Act, uh, and now called the Child, Youth, and Family Services Act. And one of those changes was to, there was a gap before for 16 and 17-year-old girls. So we're seeing a very large number of 16 and 17-year-old girls in Ontario that were being preyed upon in the group homes and the foster care system. Um Actually, sorry, that's the 16 and 17 year olds weren't being serviced by the system. So I'll correct that by saying that these girls weren't being serviced by the system. And what you were seeing is people preying on these young ladies, 
what Kathleen Wynne did was she created legislation that went up until they were 18 and tried to fill in the gap. That's a start. Yeah. But what we need to do is we can't just expect that that will be the solution. We need to keep working on it. And like anything else, it needs to evolve. And we need to, we need to have something in place. One of the things that Ontario has done and hopefully the Ford government will see the value in the service that, uh, that uh, Miss Richardson provides is Jennifer Richardson has been, uh, hired to be the director of the provincial anti-human trafficking coordination office, something that didn't exist before. Hmm. Uh, we're seeing these individual communities hiring uh, people like that. I'm working with an individual in the Waterloo region named Nikki Carswell, who is doing the same thing that Jennifer is doing, only within the Waterloo region. And we need, uh, what I'm hoping is that in his cost-saving measures, Doug Ford doesn't decide to start cutting these vital, what, what we have, in my view, Jonah, is, a situation that is akin to the opioid crisis. This is something that the problem already exists, but we're still, I don't even want to say we're in the early stages, but we can take preventative measures. Rather than cleaning all of this up at the back end and spending billions of dollars, let's start with the preventative measures. So my hope is that Doug Ford, Jennifer Richardson has worked in Manitoba and created a successful um um, she's had success in putting together a program in Manitoba uh, where the human trafficking problem was very serious as well. And Mr. Ford seeing the value in his cabinet, seeing the value in having programs like this to exist. So the advocacy comes not just with the individual person, but it's, it's all of us gathering together and realizing that together we can make it. So what do preventative measures look like? You cited Ms. Richardson and others. What are they actually doing when money is spent and programs are instituted? What does that look like? Well, it, it, it goes right down to the grassroots. I mean, training the individuals to recognize the problems, um, creating programs such as safe houses, as opposed to shelters yeah. and as opposed to group homes, creating specialized spots where um, where these young people can be helped. And, and because no two people will react or come out of survive human trafficking the same way. So what we need are that we need at that basic level, the individual approach. I mean, I'm seeing kids at this point uh, slipping through the cracks. I, I still think from the child protection standpoint, although some measures have been taken, I still think we have a long, long way to go. But if we all work together and we all focus and we all recognize that this, in fact, is a problem, then the conversation can continue. And I'm, all, I'm always about the conversation continuing and us doing better. So that's from an administrative standpoint. That's from a provincial standpoint. But it feels like law enforcement has to play a huge role in this. How are they able to do that? How can law enforcement get involved? Do there need to be specialized anti-trafficking units, something like that? Do we have enough in just, I don't know, the vice department that we have? Or does the resources need to be devoted specifically to police so they can understand what they're dealing with? And it is, in fact, very, very different 
than typical sex trade, than typical violence, than typical crimes? Well, and the answer is there are. Um, and, and what I'm finding is that some areas and uh, regions are more well-trained or better developed in terms of anti-human trafficking initiatives than others. However, the important thing to realize here is that most, if not all regions in Ontario, realize that this is an issue. And uh, that said, I am seeing areas where the resources are underfunded or underdeveloped. This is a difficult area. And I've had burnout uh, just dealing with a few individuals that are victims of human trafficking. When you see this falling on just the two or three officers that are that form the anti-human trafficking unit, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. And and there has to be concern about burnout in that area. So what we need to do is part of the problem that I see within uh, the province, and it's not just with human trafficking, but it's with a number of different initiatives, is that we all operate in silos and bringing everybody together. And working, and I think that's where Jennifer Richardson is so important. Uh, her hiring uh, within Ontario and uh, within the Ministry of Community and Social Services, it's so important because she is that person that can work with all of the other communities. Um, if we're operating in silos, unfortunately, uh, I, I see things sometimes being counterproductive because you have two organizations trying to do the same thing. But sometimes those organizations are fighting after the same dollar, right? So there needs to be a coordination, um, and, and I'm seeing that happening now. I, the, the awareness is the first thing that happens, but coordinating everybody and getting everybody working together is uh, is also crucial. You cited burnout as a concern, and obviously you're in the middle of it. You're handling cases at the you know attorney level, and it's going to hit. First of all, if you're a human being, it's going to hit close to home. The fact that you have a teenage daughter even more so, this has got to be really, really tough. You're a year into this. You want to affect change, but you also want to be able to live life and watch a ball game and have a beer and have a normal life and not let this consume you. If you don't mind me asking, how do you do that? That cannot be easy. You know what? How I've done it, initially, we tend to take the world on our shoulders. We want to be crusaders for that cause. Yeah. Um, I did that. A number of the other individuals that I was working with did that. Then we realized that, you know what, we all have each other. And we all need to, and this is where traditionally we have a system, now speaking from the legal standpoint, Jonah, we have a system that's an adversarial system. So when you get into court, it's one side versus the other. They put the V in the middle there for a reason. Um, what I've stopped doing with the exception of representing the young people in court, is I've stopped litigating. My view is, whether you call it mediation or collaboration, I like the word collaboration a lot better, is that we all work together. Hmm. Because the more people you have working on a problem that are focused on the problem, the more likely that you're going to be able to affect that change, come up with a resolution, and also be able to come back to the table at some point to say, okay, what did we do right here? What did we do wrong? Uh, from an institutional standpoint, I have had concerns that um, uh, that some of the institutions that are meant to be there to 
protect children get caught up in other things. However, to just throw your hands up and say that we can't change that, uh, that is not, that's not a plausible answer to me. What we need to do is we need to keep coming back to the table and I'll keep pestering people until, until they listen. And I think people are starting to listen. People are realizing not, and I'm not saying through me. I don't really care if it's through me or anybody else. Yeah. Realize that there's a problem. Realize that we are the ones that can change this both right now and for the future of our children. And realize that this means that we need to have an ongoing conversation. Realize that this means that we have to be able to agree to disagree on certain things. But more importantly, we need to listen to one another. Uh, and that's... Go ahead. Well, and that, to me, is the most important thing. We need to be able to sit at a table and and listen to each other's perspectives and work on things from those perspectives. I, I Too many times, even in the last year, I've been sitting at that table and been frustrated because I've heard from people who are, quote-unquote, in authority, telling me that we know what we're doing, we don't need your help. You know what? That is so short-sighted. Hmm. We all need each other's help. We all need to work together. And we all need to be able to admit, you know what? We tried this. It didn't work. We made a mistake. How are, how are we going to retool it? Rather than worrying about, and again, part of it from my standpoint is having this adversarial system because everybody's worried about oftentimes covering their own butts or, or yeah. the liability aspect of things. You know what? Forget about the liability and start thinking about the central focus is the kids, is helping these children, helping these young adults, even beyond 18. How are we going to make this better? And if you're not going to have the conversation, then you're not going to affect change. Right. I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, if a case is brought against a pimp specifically, it's not exactly, you know, it's it's the state bringing the case. It's not your client per se. But if your client is called to testify, things of that nature, if you are somebody representing one of these perpetrators, even if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're guilty, you have an obligation. It's part of your profession to defend whoever. It's a murderer. It's a rapist. It's a trafficker. You have to do this stuff. Can you get those people to the table to get them to admit responsibility, come to a conclusion, or is it just, no, this is their legal, and you can forgive me for asking an ignorant question, because I think of things from a humanistic no. point standpoint, but they want to get their client off. That's what they're there for. They're not really there to help the welfare of of some 14-year-old girl. They're there because they've been hired by their client. So what do you do in that case? It might not be you directly, because again, it would be the state bringing the case, but is there something that can be done in that particular situation? Well, and I think this is why you're seeing, Jonah, that drug trafficking uh, is on the decline and human trafficking is on the rise because mm. you can control the witnesses. <clears throat> the, the reason why it's a ghost crime is because it's invisible. These people can control, the pimps can control these, uh, the witnesses and prevent them from testifying. Right. I take, I take no issue with my colleagues whose job it is to uh, defend these individuals. Um, the 
I know that more recently, what we are seeing is an increase in the number of um, uh, charges that are being laid. I know that within the last couple of weeks down in London, there were three individuals that were convicted. They all pled guilty. Um, you know, I, I think there's a bigger societal issue here because we do live in a rape culture and we do have uh, some societal views that may be quite anachronistic. I mean, not the least of which is why doesn't this girl leave? Right. Right. That's that's a question that's often asked. But, you know, what any of the professionals and, and quite frankly, the professionals that I've come across, uh, whether it be Jennifer Richardson, uh, another individual I've worked with is Tamiya Nagy. Uh, the reason why they're professionals and they're, they're experts in this area is because they've survived it themselves. So Jennifer Richardson is a survivor of human trafficking. Uh, Tamiya Nagy, who speaks all across the world now and trains police forces is a survivor of human trafficking herself. So uh, this is our, 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 our views on the issue need to change. Now, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I answered your original question. So um, well, you did. I mean, you said that you defend, you appreciated the rights of attorneys to defend their clients, but yeah, witness intimidation should not be allowed by anybody, even if it's somebody defending their client. You can't well, and, and so where does that leave us? And again, this is my opinion, and I know that some don't share this view with me. Yeah. Um, it was funny. Uh, well, not funny. I I missed the Vlad Jr. Uh, home run in Montreal. Mm. The, the only game I've missed uh, in the last, since 2015, when I started going to Montreal to see the, uh, the exhibition games. Yeah. And I missed it because I had to fly back to Toronto, and I took two days of anti-human trafficking training um, with the Ontario Native Women's Association. And again, the indigenous population is overrepresented in this area. I think I had a statistic that's in Saskatchewan or in Manitoba, 70 to 80% of children exploited are indigenous. Wow. uh, Or of indigenous descent. Yes. I mean, there's, we're talking about the tip of the iceberg here. But one of the one of the programs, one of the speakers that we had was a Toronto police officer, and they actually showed us. Um, it wasn't a sting, but they were going sometimes with the police officers. The best they can do, Jonah, is go door to door and knock on the doors, knowing that these girls uh, are being exploited, knowing that these girls are being trafficked, and simply saying, "You know what? If you need help, we're there." Because these girls usually don't have their identification is taken away from them for a reason so that nobody can identify other than that person saying that they're under 18. Um, and what? so we're sitting in a downtown Toronto hotel. I thought it was a nicer hotel. It's certainly not top end, but it's, it's mid to higher range. And we're sitting there, and he's showing the video, and their whole operation was going had gone on in that hotel. Wow. They were knocking door to door in that hotel. Um, so in terms of what can we do, I think it's, it's a holistic thing. It's the, I think one of the things that we can do is stiffer penalties against the Johns. There, nothing's going to drive, uh, drive down the demand for this type of product, if you want to call it that, yeah. than cutting it off at its knees. 
Now, there seems to be some disagreement with that. I still think, and I think there are a lot of people that do, I uh, think that if you impose stiffer penalties, harsher penalties, uh, penalties that carry more shame with them to the Johns, that's going to dry up the demand for this. Um, I think if you start penalizing the finance industry, banking industry, the hospitality industry, or because oftentimes, so we have a corridor. You're well aware of the 401 and the 400 series of highways. Yeah. The these young people are trafficked from Ottawa down to Windsor. Um, they're trafficked in the hotels that are close to the 401. They're they're mobile, uh, even up in the cottage country. So some of the other 400 highways, uh, these kids are being trafficked and. The reason for that is because of the convenience. I mean, there's so much convenience uh, that we built. So you start uh, hospitality industry. Um, some would say it has turned a blind eye. Hmm. They know that this is going on, but you know what? It's bringing in money, right? And, and at certain times, I've even heard, you know, the pimps occupying one floor of a hotel and. Uh, the the girls being trafficked occupy another floor of the hotel and there's just a steady stream of business. Hmm. So the hospitality industry is starting to take this more seriously. The banking industry, which I wouldn't have even thought, right. but uh, but my friend Tamia Nagy has been speaking to the banking industry. And what are the signs of uh, money coming in from trafficking? And what can you do about it? And working with law enforcement to start start penalizing, right? And, and all of those efforts are ultimately going to uh, shrivel up the, the business, at least my hope. Going after the pimps, Jonah, I, I mean, like anything else, it's like a cockroach. You step on one and ten more will appear. Right. So they're not going away. There's always somebody ready to step into their shoes. So you know what? You have to find other ways to cut this cut this industry off. It's interesting. It almost feels like an Al Capone tax evasion kind of thing that you get at it from a finance. If you eliminate the financial incentives or you get people financially, it, it can crack this thing apart because you started talking about, okay, that if it's one girl that can raise $300,000 a year and if you have a stable, it can raise this much. Everything is financially based. And if you're, if you're a high level drug trafficker, if you're a high level bank robber, if you're anything, it is based on finances. So you find a way to stomp out the financial incentive rather than specifically saying, okay, well, I'm going to go after this guy. Sounds like that might be the method to go. Well, that's it. That's it. And, and there are other methods that have yet to be found, yeah. yet to be determined. But again, this is where all of us talking to one another, all of us carrying on this conversation, we'll figure it out. Because you watch, as much as we want to think that uh, the typical pimp is, you know, of that Huggy Bear vintage and Starsky and Hutch, um, this is a very, very, uh, from the level of manipulation uh, and luring and grooming that goes on to the high-level business that this attracts, it's a very elaborate scheme that's going on, right? So don't be fooled by the fact that you think that the, the pimp wears a purple fedora and a fur coat and carries a cane around, right? That That's not how it works. We're talking, and you're right, Jonah. This is 
financial. This is lucrative. You cut it off there. You find a way to cut it off there. And you know what they're going to find? And they're going to, they'll start dealing in cryptocurrency. So you got to figure out a way to deal with that too. You have to be anticipating what the next move is going to be. And I, what I'm seeing is what gives me a lot of optimism is so many different industries are now starting to work together. You know, I'm just dealing at, with it from the, the child protection standpoint. There are much, much higher levels and much more important people than me uh, that are having these conversations. And you know what? If we're all working together, then we're going to figure this out. All right. So one last, uh, we've talked about law enforcement agencies. We talked about attorneys. We talked about elected officials, all that. For the rest of us who are horrified by this, people are going to listen to this and say, oh, my God, this is terrible. If you have a relative who has cancer, you can give a hundred bucks to the cancer society. If you want to get rid of animal cruelty, you can finance no-kill shelters. There are things that you can do to try to help. What can the rest of us who don't, wouldn't seem to be equipped with the ability to affect change, somehow find a way to affect change or help others affect change? Well, I, I can assure you that this is enough of a problem across North America for sure. Yeah. Uh, but certainly across the world that I would find it difficult to believe that, uh, whether you're in a city, province, uh, state that doesn't have some organization within that community that people can turn to. Yeah. And uh, what I want people to do is to say, I can't believe that this is happening. How can I do more? Reach out to the organization within your individual community, and I guarantee you that, uh, that they want the help. They want the recognition. The fact that uh, you're having me on, Jonah, I can't thank you enough because this has become such a cause that's so important uh, to me over the last year. And then realizing, now I, I said earlier, I did a mental audit of the cases. So one of the things that we tended to do was identifying situations of human trafficking as being parent-teen conflict because we didn't know what the label was at that point. Right. The parent is coming to the Children's Aid Society or Child Welfare Authority and saying, you know, my kid's not coming home. Um, what uh, What's going on? They're, they're high all the time. They're not going to school. And all of a sudden it was parenting conflict. So we put them on a track of how do you resolve the parenting conflict while you go to counseling? The reality is I, I've done audits. And like I said, there's at least six or seven other cases that I've dealt with that were human trafficking. And we misidentified them. So make yourself aware. Read up on the subject. Um, turn to, I guarantee you, the police forces, and they have their own human anti-human trafficking divisions, um, organizations within the communities. Just get out there and continue to don't let this problem rest until we've resolved it. David Morneau, I appreciate the hard work uh, that you put into this uh, very difficult but noble cause, and uh, thank you for your time.